the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we are prepared for worship of the study of God's Word, for concentration. We do that for a few moments of silent prayer to give those of you who need to an opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. Scripture says if we confess our sins, and the word for confess means to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. If we admit our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That means those that we just named. And then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that there are many sins that we commit that we're unaware of are sins. There are some sins that we forget we committed. And yet, at the instant of confession of the known and remembered sins, all other sins are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Scripture says that God removes our transgressions as far from us as the east is from the west, and He remembers our sin no more. That is the remarkable grace of God. God has dealt with the sin problem completely, and so we can go directly to Him. We'll see that a little bit this morning in our study, that because every believer is a priest to God, We have direct and immediate access to Him. There's no intermediate necessary. We just go to Him in prayer. We confess our sins. We're instantly forgiven, cleansed, restored to fellowship, recovered the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can uh, study God's Word, understand it, apply it in our lives, and advance to spiritual maturity. So let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we do thank you so much that we have this privilege to study your word today. There are so many fantastic truths in your word, the most important of which is our salvation. That you sent your son, you, you made a plan from eternity past to send your son to become a man, to go to the cross and there to die as our sin substitute. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Father, now as we study about our Savior who loved us so much that He died as our substitute, we pray that we might be challenged, that we might understand all of the dimensions that are ex- expressed in these scriptures, and that we might be encouraged to move forward, to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 
John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and we are studying, continuing our study of what is called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the most remarkable prayers in all of Scripture. It is t- takes place the night before Jesus Christ went to the cross. He has been with his disciples earlier where he celebrated the Passover meal. And then he began to instruct them on the fact that a new age was coming because he knew that on the next day he would be, be uh, crucified. The sin penalty would be paid for that a new dispensation, a new age, a new era, era would come in to human history and this would be marked more than any other age by grace. But it would be a transformation because in the past, God had worked in the previous dispensation through the nation Israel. The nation Israel had a specific plan that was based upon a ritual procedure and a formal priesthood that involved a high priest. That high priest was the one who took the nation and represented them before God. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle and later the temple was constructed something like this. There was one way, one entrance. There is always only one way to God throughout the Scriptures. There was only one way to survive the uh, cataclysm of the judgment of the worldwide flood with Noah. There is only one way into the presence of God in the tabernacle and temple. As you entered into the courtyard through the one way, there was one small building that was divided in two compartments. This was called the holy place, and the innermost compartment was called the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, there was one piece of furniture called the ark of the covenant. It was a wooden box that was covered with pure gold inside and out. That is a picture of the combination of pure deity, undiminished deity, and true humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything in the tabernacle of the Old Testament portrayed something about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was, as it were, an audiovisual lesson for the nation so that they could understand in very concrete terms what God was going to have to do to bring about salvation. For example, you have in the holy place, you had three, uh, you had three different pieces of furniture. Uh, you had on one side a table of showbread. This was bread, unleavened bread that was placed there that represented uh, Jesus Christ as the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, representing the fact that it is only through Uh, accepting Christ just as any person can eat, any person can exercise their volition to accept Christ as their Savior. And that is what the bread represented, the source of life. Bread was necessary for life. Opposite that, you had the golden candlestick, which represented Jesus as the light of the world. He would be the one who would represent man to God, and I mean, represent God to man and illuminate man. And we have this uh, mentioned by John, even in John chapter 1. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus said, I am the light 
of the world. And then there was another article of furniture called the altar of incense that stood before this veil. This was a a veil across here uh, protecting the people from seeing God and, and walling him off. The only person who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. The altar of incense represented, represents the continuous prayers, the intercession of Jesus Christ for his people. And we see this fulfilled in his high priestly prayer of John 17 and the continuation of that intercessory prayer ministry for every single believer throughout the church age. Now, in the ritual of Israel, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, come, would enter into the tabernacle, and on the altar he would slaughter a, a lamb. And he would take that lamb's blood and he would pour it into a basin. Then he would take that basin and enter into the holy place, and he would go past the veil into the presence of God, into the inner holy of holies at the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, if you looked at it from a frontal view, you had the lower part of the Ark, the box. That's basically what Ark means. It means a box. And in that box, there were um, three different articles. There was the Ten Commandments. There was the uh, piece of manna indicating God's provision for Israel, which they had rejected, as well as Aaron's rod that was brought to life and budded, indicating that God brought new life out of dead life, but it symbolized the rebellion of Israel against the authority of Aaron at one point. All three articles, the Ten Commandments, the uh, manna, and and Aaron's rod that budded, represented sin in the life of Israel. On top of this ark, there was a cover, a lid, On that lid, there were two uh, cherubim, cherubs, that are orders of angels always representing the holiness of God. God's holiness includes two primary aspects, His perfect, absolute righteousness and His justice. So what you have is justice and righteousness looking down on the sin of mankind. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God must execute. So when the righteousness of God condemns sin or rejects sin, the justice of God must condemn sin. But in the picture of the ritual of Israel, the high priest would put on this top lid of the ark this bowl that contained the blood from the lamb that was without spot or blemish. That is a portrayal of Jesus Christ, why he is called the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He fulfilled this in every aspect. Now that blood is placed on this lid of the ark, and the name for that lid was the mercy seat, because it symbolizes the mercy of God. When the righteousness of God looks on that blood that was shed from the sacri- symbolizing the sacrifice of Christ, it is satisfied because it is that substitutionary death of Christ that pays the penalty for sin. So because the righteousness of God is satisfied, the justice of God can now approve mankind 
and blessed man. So the blood has to be applied. That was also symbolized at the Exodus. when During the tenth plague, when God was going to uh, send the angel of death to kill the oldest in every household, God said there is a great solution. Notice there's only, once again, one way of survival, the judgment of God. And that one-way survival was that, uh, and this is what instituted the practice of Passover, is that the lamb's blood, a lamb without spot or blemish, was to be uh, killed, sacrificed, and the blood from that lamb was to be applied to the doorposts and the lentil of the door. Of course, this can be drawn out in the shape of a cross, foreshadowing the cross of Christ. And when the angel of death came over, came down to Egypt, when the angel of death saw the blood applied to the household, it passed over that house, so that the eldest was not taken in death. That's why it is called Passover. Now, once again, this symbolizes the fact that, there is, that God provides a gracious, gracious solution to avoid divine judgment. Now, in the picture of the, the Old Testament, going back to the temple tabernacle service, it was only the high priest who could go into the presence of God. And this symbolizes the fact that Jesus Christ, when he came would fulfill that role as the high priest for the church. And that he is the one who goes into the presence of God on the basis of what? On the basis of his own sacrifice. He is qualified by his perfect life, his sinless life, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and then he in turn goes into the presence of God. And by virtue of that, he has the right to pray for us as our high priest. Now, he, because he fulfilled all of the Old Testament symbolism with his death on the cross, the Old Testament priesthood was abolished. At the, the day that Christ went to the cross, the formal priesthood was abolished. Scripture says that there is one God and one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. There is no longer the need for an intermediary priesthood. It was abolished on the cross. Jesus Christ is the high priest who has opened up the way so that from the point of the cross on, every single believer has immediate and direct access to God because we are the new royal priesthood established uh, by Christ. Now, as part of his role as the high priest, Jesus prays for us. It is called intercessory prayer because he prays on our behalf. And we get a, a unique glimpse into this conversation that God the Son has with God the Father in John 17. We have seen in our study of the first five verses that this is an example of Jesus' dependence, his role subordination to the Father. That in the Trinity, God the Son is not subordinate to the Father in terms of his essence or his character, for he is undiminished, eternal deity. But he is united with true humanity, and as his role, and we studied this in detail, because as his role, 
He is subordinate to the Father, but He is still equal to the Father. And we studied the implications of that. We answered the question, what was Jesus before He came? And we saw that He was eternal God, undiminished deity, with all of the attributes of God, and that He existed uh, as one with God, one in essence, but a distinct person throughout all eternity. Then we asked the question, what was Jesus when he came? Because in verse 5, Jesus prays to the Father, uh, Restore to me the glory which I had with thee. Or he, sa- he prays specifically, he says, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So he had temporarily veiled his glory during the incarnation because he came to... Uh, go to the cross. He did not come uh, as God, but to be man and to go to the cross as true humanity to die as our substitute. So that is the union in his one in his person of true humanity, undiminished deity, united together in one person, and we call that the hypostatic union, the union of two hypostases, two natures in one. Uh, one person. Then Jesus prays in the verses 6 through uh, 19. He begins to pray for the disciples, and there is application of that to every church age believer. And then in verse 20, he shifts over to praying specifically for those who will believe in me through their word, and that is for every single one of us. Now, what's important here is that we see what Jesus is praying for. Now, this tells us something about His priority for our lives. Not what our agenda is for our life, not what our plan is for our life, not what our priority or scale of values is for our life, but what Jesus' priority is for our lives and what His scale of values is. So, what we have to do here is as we look at what Jesus is praying to be accomplished in our lives... We have to see if that runs counter to what we want to have accomplished in our lives. Now, that might get a little convicting, so maybe we don't want to go too long this morning. But that is exactly what we have. See, Jesus is out to accomplish a goal in our lives. And you're either going to be involved in trying to frustrate that goal, or you're going to be uh, operating in cooperation with that goal. Now, that's exactly why some believers have lives of misery and never seem to get anything done and always repeat the same errors, is because they are not uh, concerned with the same things that God is concerned about for their particular life. Now, this represents, as I said last time, Jesus' prayer for believers. This is not what he is praying for for the world or unbelievers. It is what he is concerned about for believers. Let's look at verse 11. We got down through verse 10 last time. Jesus says, And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we. Notice I left out a few words there because they're not in the original. They are simply supplied by the translator that, uh, in order for it to make a little more sense in the English. But sometimes that misses the thrust of the, of the original Greek. Now, 
Jesus is stating here that he is in the world. It's important for us to understand this word that will be used several times in this passage, and it is the Greek word kosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. And it has to do with uh, the primary meaning of that which is an orderly, systematic arrangement. Now, that can be applied to all sorts of different objects. Uh, it can be applied to ideas. It can be applied to physical things. Uh, we get our English word cosmetics from this, and that talks about the fact that uh, a woman, when she puts on cosmetics, puts on an orderly, systematic application of uh, various things in order to make herself more attractive. And that does not mean that, that cosmetics are, are worldly. I think somebody who didn't know anything about Greek made that application years ago. And so you had a lot of very unattractive women running around because they never used makeup. And they thought somehow that made them more spiritual. Well, that has nothing to do with this concept in the Scripture. Now, Jesus uses, I mean, in this passage there are two different phrases. There is in the world and there is the phrase of the world. Now, just like in, in English, a word can have a variety of different meanings and nuances, Jesus uses the word here to refer to the physical environment of the earth and human society. The physical environment of the earth and human society. But when he uses it in this sense of the world, he is talking more about the, what we have defined as the cosmic system. This is the system of ideas, thoughts, philosophies, procedures, and policies that are contrary to God's thinking. You see, when you look at the entirety of the Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, what we have is called the mind of Christ. It is the thinking of Jesus Christ and what we can extrapolate from every chapter, every passage of Scripture, is God's viewpoint on every issue of life. Now, it may not give us every detail. It certainly doesn't discuss in detail certain things that we might think of today, such as uh, genetics or DNA or other things. But it certainly gives us the framework for evaluation, evaluating everything, from economics to politics to social structures, family, marriage. There is no field of endeavor left untouched by the Word of God. It provides a, the starting point, the basis, the framework for thinking about everything. And so the Bible expresses one unified view of everything from Genesis to Revelation. You don't find, even though the Bible is written by over 60 authors, it was written over a period of uh, about 3,000 years. These authors came from different cultures. Some were Jewish. Some were Gentile. Some came from a Greek background. Some came from a Persian background. Others came from, uh, had an, more of an Egyptian influence, such as Moses. You had people like Moses who was reared to be the king of Egypt. You have Daniel, who was the prime minister of the greatest empire of his day. He was second in command to the uh, king of Persia. He was also second in command to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the previous empire of Babylon. 
you also have at the other end of the scale, you have people like uh, Amos, who was a herdsman and a fig picker. You have uh, uh, David, who was one of the greatest kings and musicians and geniuses of all time, and his son Solomon, who was like the Leonardo da Vinci of the ancient world. In fact, from what we know about Solomon, da Vinci was a, was a Solomon wannabe. Solomon was incredible in what he accumulated in terms of wealth, his thinking, and, and uh, was, was far beyond anything, I think, that da Vinci ever, ever thought about. He was probably, Solomon was probably the most brilliant man ever to have lived. So you have men from one end of the spectrum to another, fishermen like Peter. You have a trained rabbi like Paul, originally Saul of Tarsus. And yet all of these men writing over a period of 3,000 years from different cultural backgrounds, different viewpoints, different levels of education, different training, all present one clear, unified view of everything. There is no disagreement. There is no contradiction between them. In contrast, the scripture says man has a contradictory way of thinking, which I call human viewpoint, and we also call in a technical way, not meaning to be uh, derogatory or pejorative, that uh, called paganism. The technical term of pagan is anything that is contrary to the Bible. So human viewpoint may, may work. It may look good, it may sound good, it may be very attractive. And the scripture says that Satan has made his frame of thinking, his cosmic way of thinking, very attractive to mankind. And Satan is no dummy. He is the most intelligent, most beautiful creature ever to come from the hand of God before he sinned. And so he is able to devise all types of philosophies and religious systems that seem to be very attractive and very appealing to people but they are contrary to the Word of God. Solomon warned us, and Solomon tried everything to find happiness. He was one of the wealthiest men that ever lived. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and and, uh, so he tried sex as the key to happiness. He tried everything there was, and at the end he said there is no happiness apart from a relationship with God. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. And so Solomon writes twice in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to man, that's human viewpoint, it fits all of our empirical, rational standards, but the end thereof is death. See, man says there are many ways to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So we have this contrast in this prayer between the cosmic system, which is the environment of human thought, which is antagonistic to God. There are two key elements of cosmic thinking. One is it, is, it exemplifies a hatred or antagonism toward God and the truth of the Bible. And the second is that it is based on arrogance. Man thinks that he has a better way just generating out from his own experience, his own thought, his own frame of reference, that he can come up with what seems to be a more reasonable uh, analysis of the situation and problem. And what we've seen many times is man's too limited. He just doesn't know enough. No matter how much you push the boundaries, man can always come up with, may discover something next week that invalidates everything he's thought up to this point. Rationalism and empiricism cannot provide any sort of 
of basis for knowledge of truth. And what happens, as we have seen throughout history, is you have these, these trends. And you see this in philosophy. For, for several generations, you'll have an emphasis on rationalism and empiricism and human thought and intellect, and that really doesn't provide the answers. And so then you go through an age of skepticism where you can't find truth, you can't know truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Everything is relative. Uh, we can't really know anything for sure. But people can't live like that. You, you can't live like that. Somebody comes along like you have in our postmodern society and says, well, there are no absolutes. Then you have to ask the question, if you're thinking, is that an absolute? Hmm. Well, yeah, it is. Okay, so we know that there's one absolute. There is no absolutes. Well, that's self-contradictory, so let's start over. Rationalism and empiricism always lead to breakdown because man is too limited. That always leads to skepticism. And the reaction to skepticism, man can't live as a skeptic. So he has to have some ultimate hope. He has to hope against hope even if it's irrational. And so then we have irrational mysticism. And that's where we are today with so many of the New Age religions that are popular today. The rise of astrology and all kinds of different things that people emphasize. Uh, it's just, just subjectivism and mysticism. Don't confuse me with facts. I just want to believe whatever I intuit on the basis of my own sense of what must be right. The Bible contradicts and cuts through all of that. There's always this kind of contrast between the uh, antagonism to the truth and the arrogance of man versus the emphasis in Scripture on humility and true love as it is exemplified in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now, that helps us to understand the vocabulary and the frame of reference for what Christ is praying for for every single believer in this prayer. Verse 11, he says, I am no more in the world. He is speaking of the fact that on the next day he will be crucified. He will go to the grave. Three days later, he will rise bodily from the grave. There would be over 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection so that no one could claim that it was just a subjective fabrication of the disciples. There were too many witnesses. And, uh, and that demonstrated historical veracity. He's on the cross three days and three nights in the tomb. Then you have the resurrection. Then he is on the earth for approximately 40 days. And then he ascends to heaven where he is seated at the uh, right hand of God the Father as our high priest. And so during this church age, ten days after he ascended, you have... um, uh, the day of Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit ascended upon the church, marking a new dispensation called the church age. And during this church age, Jesus Christ is in the heavenlies, seated at the right hand of God the Father, praying continuously for every member of the church. This is his high priestly prayer, and this is what he is praying for us right now. He says, I am no more in the world. I am not there yet. They themselves, that is, church-age believers, are going to remain in the world, in the physical earth, and surrounded by human society and all of the various thought forms, philosophies, and ideas of human viewpoint in the world system. And he says, I come to thee, Holy Father. Now, I want you to notice this. He addresses the Father in a unique way here. He says, Holy which is from the Greek word hagias, which emphasizes uniqueness 
And the main idea is to be set apart. Too often we get the idea that holy means some sort of otherworldly idea or moral purity, except the word holy is often applied to inanimate objects. It, it, it's the Greek word hagias uh, translates the Old Testament Hebrew word kadash. And kadash, and the root meaning of both words is to be set apart for the use of a God or for the use of a divine purpose. And it ultimately has the idea of being set apart or distinct or unique. And it doesn't necessarily imply moral purity. For example, the, in the... Uh, in the phallic cult and the fertility religions, the priests, the I mean the uh, prostitutes, the male and female prostitutes were called kadshim and kadshu, which is the uh, masculine feminine participles uh, from kadash. And of course, they weren't morally pure; they were prostitutes. They were religious prostitutes, and uh, but they were set apart to the service of their god. And that's the root meaning of kadash, to be set apart. And so here he emphasizes the uniqueness of God, that he is set apart because of his holiness, because of his integrity, his absolute righteousness and perfect justice. So he focuses on the character of God right here, that we need to remember that as a backdrop to understanding this prayer. I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. And here we have the Greek word tereo, and here we have an aorist imperative. Now, what's interesting here is we have several requests. Now, this is an imperative of request. It is not a command. It is not that the God the Son is mandating or demanding something of God the Father. It's called a, these are called an imperative of request uh, or an imperative of entreaty. And he says, keep them in thy name. And here we have in the Greek the preposition in, E-N, plus the dative. And this indicates a number, can indicate a number of things, but in this kind of a context it indicates means. And we have seen that the concept of name indicates all of what a person is. A name was to reflect the essence or the character of a thing. So when Jesus prays, keep them in your name, he is emphasizing the fact that it is by means of God's character that the believers are kept. And what did he just emphasize in terms of God's character? His holiness, his integrity, his perfect righteousness, and his absolute justice. This takes us back to the imagery of the Ark of the Covenant, that those two cherubs who look down on the mercy seat, righteousness and justice, are satisfied by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that man's salvation is dependent not on his good deeds, not on ritual, not on church attendance, church involvement, uh, any other human factor. It is based exclusively on God's character, that His righteousness and justice are satisfied. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, then we are saved. At that instant, what happens is that at the instant of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are minus R. Scripture says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That means that even our very best is as a filthy rag in the sight of God. Now, now the Hebrews are very... Uh, very uh, picturesque term, and I don't want to shock too much of you or offend you too much, 
But if you were to go down to the uh, biochemical waste depository down at Bacchus Hospital and dig through all of the uh, uh, bloody surgical bandages that have been taken out of uh, the operating room in the last uh, week and then take them off somewhere and let them rot for a while, uh, that's the image of the Hebrew word here. That's what God thinks of all our good deeds. He, He says they are like filthy rags. Well, at the cross, Jesus Christ, who was perfect righteousness, became sin on our behalf. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So that all of our sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. At the instant of salvation, God imputes to us perfect righteousness. That means that His righteousness is credited to us because we're not relying on anything in us. We're relying 100% on the fact that Christ died for us. He who who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us, so that God, who is perfect righteousness and absolute justice, now looks down upon our perfect righteousness, and His righteousness is satisfied by our perfect righteousness, so that His justice is now free to bless us and to grant us eternal life so that our eternal life is never based on anything we do, but is based exclusively on the fact that we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of that, God then keeps us. He can keep us, he can keep us because of His character. It's totally dependent on who He is and what Christ did on the cross, and not based on anything on our behalf. So, when... Jesus prays this. He emphasizes the fact that our security as believers is based on who God is. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord, that is His essence, His character, is a strong tower. The righteous, that is those who possess righteous, imputed righteousness, the righteous man runs into it and is safe. It is the character of God that preserves us, not our own character. Now then, Jesus prays, I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, indicating that he has the same character, the same identical essence as the Father. And that second use of the word name is not in the original, so it should read, I come to thee, Holy Father, that would be Father of Integrity, would be another way of translating that, Keep them or preserve them by means of thy essence, which you have given me. We have the same essence, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Christ is praying for our unity. But this is not the kind of unity that is often presented in the church today. You hear all kinds of Christians saying, well, you know, it's so bad that the church is divided. Yet there are passages in 1 Corinthians where Paul says that it's important sometimes to divide because of false doctrine. In the Scriptures, unity is not based on experience. Unity is not at the expense of doctrine. Unity is always based on doctrine. And yet today people want to run around and say, well, let's not talk about theology too much. Let's not get very detailed in our study of Scripture because we might disagree and and Jesus wants us all to be one. So let's just forget about what we think about and let's all just get together and just give each other a big group hug and go home feeling better because we're all into our warm and fuzzies. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about. First of all, we are positionally one. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same, fe- same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. This is our position at the instant of salvation. We are placed into the body of Christ, so we are all unified positionally in one body. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says the same thing. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. This is reiterated in Ephesians 4.4-7. through There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice, one faith, one doctrine, not many faiths, not many ideas, not many doctrines, but one, defined clearly in the Scripture, the Word of God. So that's the basis for our unity. And But Jesus is praying for us to be unified in doctrine as well, and that must imply that we are to study the Word of God, and we will see that He displays or develops that mechanic a few verses coming up. Verse 12. While I was with them, praying to the Father, while I was with them, that is the disciples, I was keeping them by means of thy essence. So it's emphasizing again Jesus' role in our eternal security. Remember back in John chapter 10, Jesus said that if we are saved, we are in the Father's hand and no one can take us from the Father's hand. And we are also in His hand and no one can take us from His hand. So both the Father and the Son are involved in keeping us eternally secure in our salvation. While I was with them, I was keeping them by means of Thy essence, by means of Thy name, which Thou hast given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, apoluo, which means to perish eternally. It's the word that is used in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. So none of them would perish, that is, none of them would be eternally condemned, except for the son of perdition, and that's the noun form uh, of apolumi, which also indicates that Judas was the one who was lost, because he had never put his faith alone in Christ alone. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, these things I speak in the world. That is, in the presence of human society, in the world, I am physically present in the incarnation. Uh, These things, that is, the doctrine that I have communicated, especially in reference to what he taught in John 14, 15, and 16, these things I speak in the world that they may have joy made full in themselves. Now, these things is often uh, used in a context like this to refer to all the doctrinal principles I've just explained. See, Jesus uses it this way a couple of other times in the uh, previous chapters. John 15, 11, he says, These things, that is, the doctrinal principles I've just communicated to you, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God promises every believer incredible joy. Now, this isn't the kind of ecstatic, emotional happiness that that we all know about and we've all had experience with. This is the kind of non-emotional, stable, 
contentment, tranquility that is marked by the fact that we have a relationship with God. We understand God's in control of all things. And so no matter how bad things are, no matter how good things are, there is a level of stability in our lives because we are living on the basis of absolute truth. So Jesus said, pray these things I have spoken to you. That is, if you understand and apply these things, then you will experience this remarkable joy, this incredible contentment and tranquility. John 16, 24, Jesus went on to say, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. So that indicates again that joy is the result of learning to apply doctrines in that passage specifically related to the doctrine of prayer. Every believer can pray. We are to go immediately to the throne of grace anytime we need to. We do not need an intermediary. So Jesus prays that, that for us to have joy. Now this is what Jesus wants every one of us to have, is this kind of joy. If you don't have it, then you need to say, well, I'm doing something wrong because He's already provided it perfectly at the cross. Not only that, He's provided the mechanic, the means And the means is, as we'll see in a minute, the Word of God applied under the filling of the Holy Spirit because what what, what are we promised in Galatians 5, uh, 21 through 23? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't produce it apart from the Word, but with the Word. These are the tandem power sources for the spiritual life. So Jesus says is praying that these things, the doctrine, is the basis then for having this full joy in our lives. Verse 14, I have given them thy word. This is once again the emphasis on content, not experience. I have given them thy word. I have communicated doctrinal principles to them, and the world has hated them. See, there's a correlation. When you are living on the basis of divine viewpoint, the world is going to reject you. How can you be so arrogant to think there's only one way to God? How can you be so arrogant to think that you're right? I'm sorry, it's not, I don't think I'm right. I've had to transform my thinking by the Word of God just like anybody else. It's what the Word of God says is what's right. It's not what I think, it's not my opinion or somebody else's opinion. It is what the Word of God says. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them. See, the cosmic system is always antagonistic to the word of God. Why? Because... The world, that is, of is ek plus the genitive of source. Because believers are not from the source of this cosmic system. They have been born again. They are new creatures in Christ. They are now members of the family of God. And there is a radical distinction between those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are not. And this is part of an overall spiritual conflict in the heavenlies. And so there will always be this antagonism between believers and the cosmic system that is Satan's system that is operational in the world today. So, because they, believers, are not from the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, let's look at a couple of passages to understand the significance of worldliness. 
First of all, we must understand that worldliness is not what you do as much as it's how you think. It is your your norms and standards. It is your opinions. And if they do not line up with the Word of God, then they are called worldliness. Hold your place in John 17 and turn with me to James chapter 3. Now, earlier I set up the juxtaposition between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. I said there's only two ways of looking at anything in life according to the Bible, God's way and man's way. And this is how James describes this conflict. James 3.13, he asks the question, Who among you is wise and understanding? How do you know truth? What is the absolute for understanding truth? Let him show by his good behavior, that is good of intrinsic value in the Greek, Show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. And wisdom in the Scripture is always the application of doctrine. So James is going to give us a criteria for understanding whether or not you're really applying the word or not. Now, he says in verse 14, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that is, heart cardia usually refers to the uh, inner mentality of the soul, So if you're governed by mental attitude sins, such as jealousy, ambition, arrogance, pride, bitterness, all of these things, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. See, he recognizes the truth. There is one truth. Not many truths. One truth. If you have uh, these arrogance and rejection of doctrine, then you lie against the truth. This wisdom, he's going to explain in verse 15, is really a false wisdom. He says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, that is, from God, divine viewpoint wisdom, but it is earthly, that is, it comes from, it is earthly, it comes from the sphere of the earth, from man, it's every way that seems right to man, but but the end thereof is death. It is natural, that is, sukikos, it comes from the soulish man who's not born again, does not possess a human spirit, is not saved, and demonic, these are all related. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. See, human viewpoint always collapses into dissension, antagonism, and ultimately implosion and fragmentation. Contrast, verse 17, But the wisdom from above, that is divine viewpoint wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. So we can use this as a benchmark evaluation tool to uh, look at the thought in our own souls. On your way back to John 17, stop for a minute at Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, that is, to cosmic thinking, to human viewpoint thinking. Don't be conformed to that. Don't let the world dictate your norms and standards your value system, your procedures, your policies, your problem-solving techniques, but be transformed. That means metamorpho, be totally changed by the renewing of what? Your mind, your thinking, not your emotions, not your experiences, not ritual, but by your thinking that you may demonstrate in your life what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is the mandate for the believer to transform his thinking. Now, how does that happen? Well, let's go back to John 17. 
We understand two systems of thinking and how do we renovate our thinking so that we can have that which God has promised us. Love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit, all of this, so that we can survive in the midst of horrendous circumstances with this incredible stability that God's given us. Verse 15, he says, I do not ask thee, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So once again, we are protected by Jesus Christ from uh, any kind of personal attack. There is indirect attack from Satan, but we are not ever going to lose our salvation and go back uh, into the domain of Satan. We are born in the domain of darkness, Scripture says, under in the kingdom of Satan, but at salvation we are transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the authority of God. And we cannot go back. You cannot lose your salvation. Verse 16, they are not of the world. That is, we as believers do not come from the source of the world. Even as I, Jesus says, am not of the world. He repeats that from the last part of verse 14 for emphasis. Remember, as believers, you are not from the world. There is a radical difference. Once you're saved, you're a new creature in Christ, and there is a distinction. Now, listen to what he says in verse 17. Sanctify them. Aorist imperative of request. An aorist imperative always emphasizes the highest priority. This is to be the highest priority. He uses, that's why he uses aorist imperatives all through this. These are the priorities he is identifying for the Christian life, that we are to be sanctified. This is the noun hagiasmos, which comes from the verb hagiazo, or the noun hagias, meaning holy or to be set apart. We are to live a distinct life on what basis? We are set apart by means of truth. Now, once again, it is in plus the dative of means. Set them apart, Father. Make their lives unique. It's dem- that uniqueness is demonstrated through the fruit of the Spirit. Set them apart by means of truth. The truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. There is only one truth. There are not many truths. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So he defines it for us. That it is the word of God that is truth. This is why the Word of God is alive and powerful. Not because it has some kind of internal mystical power, but because it is the truth. And when you live on the basis of truth, we have power because it is the truth. The truth is how God created things. It is aligning our thinking with reality. God defines reality, not man. And so we are set apart by means of the truth. Notice it doesn't say sanctify them by means of prayer doesn't say sanctify them by means of ritual. doesn't say sanctify them by means of emotional experiences. It doesn't say sanctify them by means of hymn singing. It doesn't say sanctify them by anything other than the truth. Thy word is truth. That is why we put our emphasis on learning the word of God. It is only as our thinking is transformed and renewed by the truth from God's Word that we learn to look at life from God's viewpoint, to evaluate situations and scenarios, and to apply the principles of God's Word to life. And in that way, we grow, we mature, we advance as Christians. It's not that as believers that we are perfect or that that we necessarily do it right all the time, but this is the process, and we move from a position of an absolute. If you don't move from a position of an absolute, then you're just awash in a sea of relativism, and there's no hope. How do you know you're right? 
You don't. There's no criterion. Yet people talk like that way. Every time you use value judgments, you imply that there's some absolutes. That's why if you notice, our vocabulary is being attacked today by postmodernism. One of the big words today is people, people don't have problems anymore. Notice they have. See, problem implies right or wrong and a right or wrong solution. You don't have problems anymore. You have issues. You have issues. Everybody has an issue. I'm getting where I hate that word. We have problems. A problem implies right or wrong. They're absolute. So we're trying to remove any word in our language that implies any sense of absolutes. And that is one, one way that we are under attack by the cosmic system. So Jesus prays. This is his priority in your life is for you to be set apart by the Word of God. That means that His priority is for you to make learning the Word of God the highest priority in your life. Verse 18, he says, As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. There is a commission to the apostles and to believers to go out and witness, to explain the gospel to unbelievers. Why? It's a a life-threatening situation. If you don't have Christ as your Savior, there is a promise of eternal condemnation. That's why this is a priority. It is not trying to impose your religious view on somebody else, but it is simply to explain to that person what God has said, and then they have their volition to accept it or reject it. You don't browbeat them with the gospel. You don't try to uh, twist their arm. You don't try to use guilt manipulation. You just explain it's up to them. They can either accept the truth or reject the truth. But it's not our decision are our position to try to uh, browbeat people into uh, Christianity, but simply to express the truth of God's Word. And it is the Holy Spirit who then, in turn, makes that clear to the individual, and it's up to their volition to make that decision. It's so that ultimately, at the judgment seat, at the uh, great white throne judgment, the issue is, what did you decide about Jesus Christ? It's not how good were you, where did you go to church, what did you do, how many good deeds did you did. The issue is simple. What did you think about Jesus Christ? Verse 19, Jesus says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself. He did that at the cross by fulfilling the will of God for his life and dying as a substitute for our sins. And for their sakes I sanctify myself. He went to the cross for our sake as our substitute for the purpose that they themselves, that is, not only the disciples, but all believers, also may be sanctified, how? By means of truth. And so the Word of God, then, is absolute truth. Never be afraid of that. The worldly culture around us wants to say you're arrogant because you think there's only one way. And we're always going to hit that, and that's always going to be the opposition. But the Word of God clearly says there is truth. The very fact that somebody can say there is if you think about it, to make a statement there, there is no one truth implies and assumes that that statement is the one truth. So it is an internal illogic, I mean, internal logical contradiction. Even to speak, unbelievers, to, to even speak or articulate anything, they have to assume that there are absolutes while at the same time they continuously reject it because they can't live consistent with those assumptions. That's the challenge. So the scripture emphasizes and Jesus emphasizes in his prayer 
that we are to focus on the Word of God. That is our priority. It is done through the Holy Spirit, though, through the filling of the Spirit. These are the tandem options. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us understand the truth. That's why Jesus prayed, I will send another comforter, and he will guide you into all what? Truth. Once again, there we have that word, one truth. There is only one way, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you so much that you have given us this clarity. You are a light shining in the darkness. Why Scripture is said, you say in the Scriptures, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It illuminates the shadows, the darkness, tells us what the what reality is like, and ultimately the reality of our own condition as sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in your free grace, you have given us the perfect solution. Jesus Christ paid the penalty. It's not because we're good. It's not because we're better than others. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because somehow we, we could discover the truth and others couldn't. It is because simply that you paid the penalty in full. It has nothing to do with who we are or what we've done, our own intellect, our own ability, our own talent. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There he paid the penalty. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that right now they would make that certain. The issue is very simple. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of uh, good works. It's not a matter of church association, affiliation. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of having committed certain heinous sins or not. Uh, it is simply a matter of simply trusting Christ for salvation. Now, Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the emphasis of this passage and that Jesus is praying for us to make learning your word the highest priority of our life, that we may learn to live in the world on the basis of your thinking, that we might have in our experience all of the joy, peace, stability, tranquility that you have provided for us on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.